So welcome to this edition of The B Word, the show where we demystify everything to do with B2B branding to get to what it really is, how it works, and why it matters for business. My name is John Galpin, co-founder of Branding Agency Designed by Structure and your host for today's episode, in which we're going to talk about all things Web3 and whether it has a branding problem and what the industry needs to do to move beyond this. Joining me today is entrepreneur and Web3 expert, Graham Cook. Graham has been developing internet-based products for the last 20 years. He joined Google in 2005 as one of the earliest European employees working on the Google ad platform and Google Analytics, and went on from there to found Qubit, a leading e-commerce personalization business providing AI-based shopping recommendations to over 1 billion users per month across more than 300 leading brands, websites, and apps, well before AI was really even a thing. Qubit was acquired by Caveo Solutions in 2021, shortly before going public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And Graham is currently focused on several Web3 projects, including music publishing, real-time blockchain data mining, and crypto asset management. So welcome, Graham, and thanks for joining us today to discuss all things Web3, AI, and beyond. Hi, John. Pleasure to be here. Good to see you today. Let's start with some of the big questions. I mean, you've been working with AI and machine learning, you know, well before the kind of current explosion of interest that we've all seen in 2023. What's changed from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I was working uh, in on AI projects when I was at Google back in 2005. I mean, it was a deep engineering project. It was using neural networks, much like we have today. I think the major thing that changed is it's gone from just being a neural network system that can play, you know, AlphaGo or drive a car or make a shopping recommendation, quite hard to relate to it, to being trained on words and images and pixels, which meant that the system could actually speak those words and pixels back to us. And actually, what is so much of making us human is language. And so the idea of a large language model just made AI very human. And delivering it through a chat bot, essentially, chat GPT and all the other systems, was a genius move. It was taking an LLM, a transformer, and making it in a chat mode that has just completely made everybody universally understand what this, this capability is now. It's, it's, it's the fastest growing software as a service application to ever exist by a country mile, faster than anything like Instagram, Facebook, Airbnb, Google. It's the fastest application to be used ubiquitously across the world that has ever been created. Yeah, super interesting. And I guess, you know, it's something that all of us can touch and interact with for the for the first time, really. So there's actually real tangibility to this, actually, which I think helps people understand understand this and how it can benefit them. Exactly. And I mean, that's so much of technology is about creating a standard that people can, un- it, whether it's a computer to computer standard, which is what the internet's made up on, uh, a barcode in which all of commerce is made up on, or it's a concept of an understanding in that standard of what something can do. And that's what is captured the world so rapidly as mm-hmm. a LLM based AI system that we have today. Much of the underlying technology though, has been the same principles as what we've had for the last 20 years. So really it's at that last uh, mile that's the real difference that's been made and uh, and really changing the world right now. And I think just one observation that, that, you know, one thing that we see is that, you know, all of a sudden though, everything suddenly has become 
you know, or seems to be becoming AI. And it kind of reminds me of the kind of cloud wash that we had a little bit in the kind of 2000s, right, where there was this kind of shift to the cloud from on-premise and that everyone was, you know, using the buzzword in their marketing and so on. Um, you know, is AI, so is AI washing a thing? And, and if it is, how does someone really tell the difference? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of that. It's exactly analogous to cloud. I think that's a really good way of looking at it on two levels. I think first level is that the core invention that has really transformed where we are today is really hard to get something that's 10 times better than that now. The LLMs we have today, whether it's Anthropic, OpenAI, one of the sort of Llama open source versions on that Meta released on, on Hugging Face, you know, they're all about the same performance in terms of their AI capability as an LLM. And so you get a lot of applications that pop up on top of that and claim to be the sort of best things in sliced bread. And, you know, what we're going to see a lot of is those applications are extremely thin. They don't really add much value beyond some user experience. And we're going to see, for instance, like ChatGPT just released the ability to chat with a PDF, for instance, and things like that. A lot of these startups that have been VC backed and grown like crazy overnight are going to be rapidly challenged and disrupted. And that's exactly what the cloud did. As services were created on Amazon Web Services or mm. Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure, companies that had a massive technical advantage overnight lost that technical advantage because the cloud just released that as an API. And it happened to Qubit. I mean, it was, I know that very well from our mm. Qubit days. So do you, it's interesting, actually. So do you think that people need to think about AI as more of an infrastructure layer then that actually is something that they can tap into through API to do whatever they could imagine? So these kind of, you know, services, the thin layer that you, you, you talk about existing on top, right? In the future, maybe there's less need for those because you can access this stuff, you know, through applications that you build and, and tap into the power of the kind of um, you know, the infrastructure as it, as it were. Exactly. I do think it's an infrastructure play, but it's important to note the timing of it. So I think there's infrastructure play, it, it's as an API on top of a cloud. So you go to Azure, you get OpenAI, and you plug that API into your business. That That's like, if you're not doing that right now, you're, you're already falling behind as a business. There's a huge opportunity right now. And then I think the other part to that is the timing of all of this is very much a Web 2 infrastructure play. Mm. And where are we in Web 2? Well, we're at the very, very, very end of a long Web 2 cycle. So what's probably going to happen at the end of a very, very long cycle is that you know it is centralized, it is an infrastructure play, it is an API, but we are on the absolute precipice of total technological disruption as Web 3 really starts to take place. And I think that will disrupt the AI as we know today, because it will be less about a centralized infrastructure play from one of them three leading clouds to something much more different in a more decentralized, distributed AI systems. And I think that's going to be where the real revolution happens for, for an AI society. Well, that's a beautiful segue into the next question. So, I mean, last year you wrote a book, Web3, the end of business as usual, you know, and in this, you talk about Web3 enabling even more possibilities. And I guess there seems to be this kind of convergence, right, between AI and, and Web3. So it'd be great to understand, you know, it, it, what is that connection? Is there really that kind of connection there? Yeah, I mean, I I, I looked at this, uh, I looked back in, in terms of the last 50 years of technology. In order to look forward, I looked back. And what I looked at was what, where did Web1 emerge 
where did Web 2 emerge and where's what's Web 3? And then what could Web 4, 5, and 6 be? What was pre-Web 1? You know, and I looked at all of those and I could see some really interesting patterns in that. And what what one of the most interesting patterns was this protocol app inversion, as I call it in the book. Web Web 1 was a protocol era. It was mainly about laying roads and railways, but the mm-hmm. shops and restaurants hadn't really popped up yet. And so you had 1970s, you had TCP IP, very beginning of the internet protocol, literally in the 70s, Vince Cerf was the inventor. And then you get over into the 90s, finally, where you had all these new protocols like SSL. And then all of a sudden, HTML pops up, makes the internet visual, not just about text and data, makes it visual, images, buttons, things like that, website, aka websites. And then we end up with this sort of final phase of Web 1 leads to Google and Amazon. And then Web 2 starts to emerge. And the Web 2 era is a is an application era where we're seeing far more new applications on top of the web one protocols. And that leads to Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and uh, Uber and Airbnb, all these incredible application businesses that really didn't invent any type of new protocol. They just leveraged the application. Mm -hmm. They just leveraged the original protocols and built a new type of application in that era. And so web three is a protocol era again, because you see this 180 degree inversion in each era. And Web3 has been a protocol era, and we'll talk more about that in, in, as well. And then Web4 is most likely to be an application era on top of Web3. And I, for me, as writing that book, it just looks so obvious that Web4 will be an AI application era on top of a Web3 protocol set of building blocks. And so that's where I really start to see the, and I wrote the book before OpenAI launched uh, ChatGPT. And I I started to see that sort of pattern of um, AI's relationship with with underlying protocols. And the weird thing in that really started to appear. And I call it the the yin and the yang of blockchain and AI. And that's where you have in AI a concept of digital abundance. You can almost in an unlimited way create something with with total abundance because of AI. That has a lot of problems that we'll talk about. And then in, in blockchain and Web3, you have the concept of digital scarcity. And there's this really beautiful partnership between something that creates actual digital scarcity at the, at the encryption, you know, down to the cryptographic mm-hmm. level. It's something that creates actual pure digital abundance and how those two things will intertwine and work with each other. It's going to be the next most influential decade to 20 years, the relationship between those two different things. So this is what you mean by Web3 being an, an enabler for AI in the future, right? Like in terms of that relationship, the yin and the yang, as you, you call it, scarcity and abundance. Exactly. I think it's essential. I think the ability for an AI to be able to verify information, authenticity and things like that. You know, We know that AI is good at lying. It's, it's effective at telling Something that look it you know believes probabilistically this is the truth, but it's actually not the truth. And so, if the AI was calling on something was cryptographically proven to be correct, did with actual digital scarcity baked into that, that this is the truth. And the AI goes, well, I can't lie because I know the blockchain truth is is signed. That signed for information is valid, so I'll, I'll rely on that signed for information as part of my decision and my training. And that's how we can get into things like verifying news, verifying authenticity of things, verifying ownership. Because as much as the AI 
is capable of unlimited amounts of thinking and, and abundance, it can't go and break the modern forms of encryption we have today. It can't break those. Those forms of encryption require almost the energy of the sun for, for a mm. trillion years to brute force break. So an AI, as smart as it is, can't break the digital scarcity principles of encryption. And that's an essential cooperation between these two things. So actually, there's, I mean, so in this kind of post-truth world that we live in, right, like that's actually quite an interesting application in terms of actually verifying that something that's been published is actually true, real, authentic, however you want to to kind of characterize it in a way that actually today you wouldn't necessarily have any idea by, you know, looking at the various news sites that we kind of all consume. So that could be quite meaningful to people in terms of the way they filter information, right? It's totally essential. I mean, if we don't have this, we are we're we're in a lot of trouble because the 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 rate at which AI can trick you and the scale at which it can do it. I mean, if you think today like email phishing and how many times you've seen one of those emails, you know, sort of ask you to send money to somebody, you know, or something like that, all these tricks. You know, that's just an email. And then you got more sophisticated ones that sounded like it was somebody you knew and send me this money. I mean, this is where your your nearest and dearest are their voice and video looks as if it's them. And you have no way of verifying if it is them or not. And and this is where these digital signatures become necessary just in in that type of day to day. And then you go all the way through to news and whether news is authentic or not. And I think you start to get a system that looks a little bit like, you know, on X.com, you have community notes now is really mm. taking off. Lots of problems still there, but it, but it's working. And you get a, like a community notes, open source, digital, digital signature type system out there. And you can start to really use the power of AI and authenticate news. And we end up in a better, more informed place than we are even in today. Yeah, and awesome. Quite, quite, I guess it's... Um quite ironic in the sense that you think about a lot of the AI applications that exist today are all about proliferation of content, right? And actually what we're talking about here is is using Web3 to actually anchor them to something that's kind of authentic and true so that we can we can understand more what what's what we're looking at, where it's come from, and whether we can kind of rely on on that or not. Completely. And imagine that you have all of those qualities and then it and then it's delivered to you in a way that you find most interesting. And you can engage with the most. So it's the truth delivered to you personally, or it's the truth in, and you're, you know, think about in education, you know, you're learning about a, you know, sort of scientific or mathematic or history, and you know, the truth is there in the, in the sort of information, but you're learning it in a personalized way that makes you interested Mm. in it. And I think, I mean, that, that creates an enormous opportunity for humanity. And what about things like intellectual property and stuff as well? I guess that's a potential kind of a convergence between AI and Web Web three as well, right? Exactly. I mean, I think it'll become a key ingredient. I mean, we've seen what we've done is we've effectively trained AI, the LLMs that we have today, effectively have been trained all the thirty years of the open web, and so it's thirty years of us putting all the world's information into the internet. I mean. The, when, when I started at Google in 2005, it was organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. That was the the mission for Google in the late 90s and and through my time there. And so we 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 did that as a humanity. We organized the world's information, we put it online, and then the AI systems have have been trained off that. Now, lots of arguments for and against this. 
of who owned that information and, and how is it being monetized properly? Very complicated territory right now. But it, technically, training, uh, you know, training and learning isn't isn't something you can you can necessarily enforce with a sort of copyright. But but as we start to leverage more specific data sets, data sets that aren't maybe part of the open web today, but are necessary for us to get the next sort of 10x out of AI, there are owners of those data sets and those data sets and workflows and all sorts of things like that, that I think Web3 mm. principles create a really good monetization-based approach mm. for those data sets. And I think it's an essential ingredient before mm. we end up with digital twins. I was I was thinking about one of these one of, so from a branding point of view as you as you know for well actually trademarking right like mm. and all of the different bodies that exist around the world it's incredibly complex expensive and time consuming in that you've got lawyers that are working in different in different geographical you know jurisdictions to figure out whether actually you can register something and own it or not and actually it would be far simpler if all of that was kind of encoded into the blockchain as one one stream of truth rather than, you know, the 300 odd that we kind of have today. I mean, you know, the application or that kind of use case, I can completely see how that would change, you know, change things for the better. And that would be, that would be a trademark. It's word mark, let's say is registered yeah. on a blockchain in a, in a jurisdiction. And then an AI layer on top of that would be interpreting whether there's been infringements or not in terms of new registrations or in use. And and that's the relationship, again, between AI and blockchain. That's another great example, exactly. Any kind of real world sort of relatable applications you can point us to that exist today that we might not, we might not know about? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing in the AI Web3 uh, space, what we're starting to see really interesting use cases are around the access to GPUs. And GPUs, the graphical processing unit, is the essential building block of being able to build a training model for AI. It's what company like NVIDIA, which is becoming a household name now, are the leading manufacturers of. And what, you, what, you're, what we're finding is there is a GPU shortage right now in terms of being able to train a model and run your own models. And they're being essentially used by you know, the sort of big cloud companies right now. But there are emerging decentralized access to compute. Now, your your Apple Mac M1 or M2 has a pretty powerful GPU in there. And, you know, if you could put all those Macs together and you put all the PCs together, you put all those old Ethereum mining rigs together. And, you know, all of a sudden there's a lot of GPU compute out there distributed in the world. And so I think one of the first really big use cases will be companies that can give you access to that GPU compute. And there's a company based in the UK called Jensen. There's a there's a company called Render. And there's a company called Akash, A-K-A-S-H, that are the three companies that are both doing this right now. And very interesting space to watch. I mean, Jensen raised over $40 million already from Andreessen Horowitz and showing a lot of promise. Awesome. So just thinking about Web3 and the kind of list of, you know, jargon terms that exist around it. So, you know, we talked about some of them already on, on, on this call, but blockchain, Bitcoin, NFTs, you know, crypto, DAO, DeFi, Metaverse, the list goes on, right? Do, do you think that this is part of Web3's challenge in that no one can really easily define at the moment what it is? Yeah, I mean, I totally, it's a total challenge. And it's, I, I, there's two things that sort of make that quite obvious. I think the first thing is when things aren't really understand, they go through these crazy hype cycles. That's why you see these sort of 
you know, prices and interest, they grow rapidly, they peak, then they crash down. And, and we sort of see that hype cycle happening here in Web3 over and over again. And, it, you know, I find that stage the most exciting. So when I'm really plugged in and excited by it, I know that it's that phase. And when, when everybody else is sort of, you know, mothers and fathers and grandparents and things like that are, are, are excited, it's usually because it's in the other phase, which I find a lot more boring. But, you know, if, if I looked at Web 1, protocol era, Web 3 is a protocol era, as I talk about in my book, you know, in Web 1, you could have been relational database, HTTP, SSL, FTP, HTML, you know, all these sort of jargony concepts that were the basis of the web. And, and you know, we used to call it hyperlinks and mm-hmm. and the World Wide Web and, and the hyperweb and all these concepts that you know, in the in the late 90s and early 2000s, before the big web crash, you could have easily said, um, oh, this web, you know, this hyperlink web thing, you know, this web pages thing, you know, it's just, it's just all hype. It's a load of jargon. And then you end up with the web two application era use cases where it's like, I need to order a cab. I need to stay in a house. I need to buy some food. I need to, or, you know, and it becomes all these sort of very human tasks with very relatable, easy to use application layer. And so I think, you know, we're in that Web3 jargon era because those are the building blocks, but the building blocks we're building on this era are are just worth $100 trillion um, over the next 10 years versus the building blocks of Web1. So it's a, it's it's just a lot more value right now. And that's why there's a lot more hype and interest in this space. So what's it going to take then for this to become mainstream thinking about, you know, the application layer that we, we got in web in web two, how, how's that going to happen in for web three? Well, I think it'll be web four. That will be the era where there's mass adoption. This is where you get to the 80, 90% adoption rate. It'll, it'll you know, th- I don't think we're going to get, you know, to the 80, 90% adoption rate on somebody getting a Bitcoin wallet or a, or even a Coinbase account necessarily. But when your healthcare data and your, you know, your longevity and all of these things are, are built into a blockchain that that's you're interacting with via an AI app on your phone or the next generation of device, then you'll be using block and Web3 without necessarily knowing what a Bitcoin address is. But I do think if I look back at Web1, you know, we ended up with Google, we ended up with Amazon. They're both, you know, two of the biggest companies in the world right now. And they serve those really important use cases of the Web 1 era, which were the idea of commerce and the idea of information. And so I do think we're in, we're still going to have those Google and Amazons of Web 3 that will still appeal to 30, 40% of the market. And I think that will, I still think that will be anything from, you know, you know, solution like Coinbase to an ETF that maybe BlackRock launch on a Bitcoin Ooh. ETF, you know, we might, that might be the sort of more mass wide adoption of, of a, of a yeah. web three capability, but with a nice, easy to use sort of familiar type of front end on it. Mm. Yeah. We're allegedly not too far away from that, uh, from that ETF, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But uh, you touched on, you know, today's internet giants, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons of the world. Um, where, where do you see the biggest potential for disruption then from Web three right right now? Yeah, I mean it's I think it's I think it's a Web three Web four disruption two prong disruption. Mm-hmm. And so I think you you look at Google for instance. This is sort of 
play that's happening that I've seen in other places. And it's you, innovator's dilemma is the way to navigate this play. And that's Clayton Christensen, the late Harvard professor who wrote about why big companies eventually fail. And usually what happens is your your success, the size of which you are operating as a business, is generating hundreds of billions in revenue, comes from a business model that is completely and utterly 180 degree disrupted by the next generation. And so it's extremely difficult to take a business, a juggernaut that's making hundreds of billions in profit and completely disrupt it. I mean, it's it's irrational almost to do that. And so Google relies on the fact that people are inefficient at finding information. They click on a bunch of ads and they make billions from that that inefficiency. And the irony of it is that Google has actually written the LLM, the large language model white paper. They, they did the research. They wrote the white paper that OpenAI has, has built so much of their principle around. And Google wrote the white paper, but Google at the end of the day, if we end up with a decentralized Web3 powered AI version of ourselves, a digital twin, we won't Google things. We won't see advertising in the same sort of way. And that is incredibly disruptive to Google's primary revenue model. And, you know, ironically, Kodak invented the digital camera. I feel like it's exactly the same 40, 50 years, you know, 40 years on play happening. And so I think the juggernauts like Google are susceptible to disruption because of their dependency on advertising revenue. They are a great technology company. They continue to innovate and make amazing technology, but their primary revenue model is advertising. And that is something that the Web3 mm. AI era will disrupt. And then Amazon and Microsoft are less susceptible. I'd say they're in a stronger position than Google, especially Microsoft right now. But at the end of the day, they're centralized and Web3 will decentralize. And it all leads up to what I call the supply side revolution, which is where the whole idea of a company gets disrupted. And maybe just explain, Graham, what you mean by digital twin and how our digital twin may be searching for information, you know, rather than us sitting in front of a browser at the moment and, you know, putting some keywords into Google, because I'm, I'm not sure everyone quite quite gets what a digital twin is right now. That's a term that means many different things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a five to 10 year play here. So so digital twin in the in the earliest instances of, of today are just where if you used have you have you used a you know a system like ChatGPT to help you write an email? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you've already started on that journey of a digital twin where you didn't sit there and write word for word. You you said, This is what I want to say to this is who I want to say it to, help me write this. And then it writes a version of that email. It's coming from you. And so those, so we're doing the very first instances, the first few popcorns are popping of this concept of a digital twin. And where the real acceleration will happen in the digital twin is when the the human who's based on linear time and, and real world is bombarded with with information that, to the point they can't cope with it. It's already we're already bombarded. And that's the point at which, you know, the only form of defense is a digital twin. It's a, a version of yourself that understands a lot about you because you're personally sharing information with this digital twin. Only the digital twin knows this information. And it's it's essentially filtering that information on your behalf. And it's sending you say, hey, we, you might be interested in this. You might be interested in that. Hey, you know, is it a time to get a new fridge? You know, here, here are the fridges we know that fit in the house right now. And uh, based on what you like to buy, this is the right size. And so it's information starts to come to you. You make the final decision. A human can only make, I think, around 400 decisions a day. 
So the digital twin will make 4,000 to 40,000 decisions a day for you. And you can make the 400 that you're capable of doing in this sort of carbon-based body that we, that we have right now. Yeah, this, this, this reminds me of, you know, almost 20 years ago, I read a book called The Food Train Manifesto. And then I went to the t- a talk about this thing that was called at the time, very unsexy vendor relationship management, right? And it was all about the notion that instead of giving away our data for free, there should be an open source way that we can monetize our information and the way that brands or advertisers, you know, access and kind of use this. And I think that, you know, you recently said something around social media and big tech has kind of held our data hostage for years, but that's going to change soon. And I guess the what's really interesting here is not only the kind of curation part that you talked about with the digital twin a second ago, but actually the kind of business model that underpins this as well, right? From a, you know, as, as someone that is as someone that's participating in this, then actually there should be some kind of value exchange, right? But at both ends, a brand or an advertiser on the one hand and a kind of individual human being on, on the other. Completely. And I, I, I think that the digital twin concept, the third phase of it is, is the point at which your digital twin is doing work on your behalf. It's actually performing multi-step processes on your behalf. And you've trained the digital twin in the skills and passion that you have. And imagine you gave, if, if we all give away our data that allows for that third phase of the digital twin to a company, then we're all rendered obsolete. We don't have any future value and work and anything that we produce, being creative, problem solving, all the things that humans are really good at today, you know, are essentially basically baked into some other AI that that is doing it based on the training that we provided it. So I think it's essential that we are building up this sort of digital versions of ourselves that are built into the principles of Web3, that, they're, that they are owned and you are in control of the key. And then you're allowing various different AIs to operate on your behalf with that information. And I do, I mean, what you pointed out there from 20 years ago is, is sort of playing out with this type of scenario. And I think it's essential for the sort of future of humanity that we do that. And I think if you break it down into things like healthcare, for instance, if we're pooling our information together on lifestyle and medical research and, and sort of, we are creating the best data set and system for improving our longevity and health as a humanity. And I, I really, I really believe something like that needs to be owned by the community and, and, and to the benefit of the community ultimately is what comes out of a sort of Web3 based principle there. I guess in terms of how this, you know, what what this kind of means for business, one thing I'm kind of hearing loud and clear here is that there's a there's much more equity in this model, right? For all of us as kind of, you know, global citizens than there is, you know, in this world today that's kind of controlled by by big business. And, you know, maybe there's kind of economic benefits that we'll get from it. But also actually interesting is your point just now. There's kind of health benefits as well that, you know, can be derived from all of this kind of data. Yeah, I mean, business is so fundamental to humanity. Like we've always been in some form of business since the dawn of time. And so business doesn't go away, but business changes. And we'll have a lot in today's value. We'll have a lot less trillion dollar companies, a lot less billion, multi-billion dollar companies. And I believe we'll have a, a lot more... Uh, the the mid tail is going to grow enormously. We'll have a lot more mid tail based companies, mid sized companies. I mean, we've already seen more 
new companies start up in the last year or two than we've ever had in the history of time. And I think what it is, is people and their skills will cooperate with other projects that are, again, AI blockchain based projects, and will work together cooperatively to create new business products and services. And I, I call this in my book, it's a major part of my book, I call it the supply side revolution. Mm-hmm. And where the internet web one and two disrupted demand, it disrupted how you booked a flight or looked up information or sent an email, web three and web four will disrupt supply, how we come together to create goods and services will be disrupted by these, these, these technology movements. And it will be more equitable. I think it will be more enjoyable. I think we'll work less days a week. We'll produce more high value stuff that we get excited and feel purpose driven by. And everything around us will get better. Goods and services will get better as a result of this. I think that's what's so interesting about this conversation is the mainstream media talks about, you know, us all being replaced by AI, right? But actually what we're talking about here is being empowered by it to live better, essentially a better life, right? Because a lot of the kind of stuff that we do today, the kind of grunt work may be taken away. And maybe there's a way for us to kind of get more value from the knowledge and the kind of creativity that we all individually bring to the workplace. Completely. And I, I think even if you are in a role that would not be considered necessarily creative, even if you're in a role that is sort of very numerical or, you know, there is a, there are creative moments in that type of work even. And, the, the, you know, every single human wants to find those moments of aha and creativity in in the different types of work they do. And and that's what this allows for. And I think ultimately, I think we've been on this very long multi-millennial journey to to what ended as peak centralization, industrial revolution, and then where we are today. And and you know it leads to the biggest companies the world's ever seen. And now we start to move into this sort of more distributed sort of cooperative model where business is still central to what we do but the way the value exchange is completely shifted as a result of these types of technologies now and and so i think you know it needs ai for this to happen because if we were just to build these new businesses on web3 it's too complex it's too it's too you know technical ai provides the very sort of non-technical layer on top of this this sort of innovation that has led to decentralization so these these kind of decentralized you know company or organizations that you're talking about are, are typically referred to as a as a DAO, right, or a decentralized autonomous organization. I think you know should should the Web three community be kind of working a bit harder to find a better name for that because it's not it's not that accessible right now. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think a DAO is anal- I think DAOs and NFTs are analogous to HTML. And, you know, and HTML and web pages. I think they're, they're, you know, the major web one innovate, like web one had been around since TCP IP in the seventies, like I said, and it took HTML for it to take a giant shift. And Tim Berners-Lee invented HTML. And I, I think that the DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization is the key building block principle of the supply side revolution in terms of the way people change the way they, they, they actually create and work together. And I think that the um, NFT is like the web page. I think it's a, these are just utilities. These are just in the background. Very few people really actually think of a website as web page or anything like that anymore. It's sort of, it's just sort of, oh, I'm accessing this brand. I'm trying to do this function. 
And I think that's what ends up happening with these mm. types of things. They are, they're, they're designed for the builders and the developers, the, the DAOs and the NFTs, but not necessarily the consumers of those eventual uh, services and products. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, that's probably part of the branding challenge here, right? In that this is, is really an infrastructure technology that you know doesn't necessarily need a name for the kind of general public it's more about for them it's going to be more about what it enables in their day-to-day life and 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 that's how they'll eventually come to understand it i think in what you're kind of calling you know web 4 when all of these kind of great things are built on top of this infrastructure layer exactly and i think the ironic way this will all play out is at the end of the web 2 era the peak centralization AI will create an enormous amount of a shift in the in the workforce. I mean, companies in their sort of need to save money will use AI and we'll see, you know, redundancies as a result of that. We've already seen it, but we'll see, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of the workforce disrupted through through potential redundancies due to AI and cost saving measures that happen in, in traditional companies. But the ironic thing about that is then I believe those people will reskill and and retool around this web three web four supply side revolution and they'll end up creating far greater equity and far more value in the world through that so the people that i believe the people who get disrupted by ai will be the first to adopt the next most valuable generation of new capabilities and that will be built on the DAOs and it'll be built mm-hmm. on the nft type principles so one one interesting thing for me then is 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 how that's really going to come about or who it's going to come about through. Because if we think about, you know, Web2 and cloud, there's many companies, right, that have become synonymous with different things. So, you know, AWS and Azure for kind of cloud infrastructure, Salesforce for applications, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what's the Web3 equivalent of that going to be? Is it going to be kind of company-led or is it going to be kind of community-led? I think, I mean, the nature of a DAO is it is to some extent, it is community-led. It is a project. I mean, if, if we go back to the very the very genesis of Web3, it was the Bitcoin white paper that was essentially 50 lines of code, a couple of a couple of sort of pages of, 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 of it actually today was the, the release of the paper, Satoshi Nakamoto's paper 15 years ago was released today. Mm. And it was sort of, here's my, here's my white paper on this concept of peer-to-peer money. I think that the concept of central banking is broken. This is this is a long time ago. I think the concept of central banking is broken. I think we need a better alternative. Here's this idea of this peer-to-peer money system that could operate as a as a banking system. And there's no people involved, there's no CEO, there's no hierarchy. It's a peer-to-peer system. And so that you know is now worth almost half a trillion dollars that that today in today's value that concept we're talking about the biggest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, you know, going on TV and saying that it's digital gold. And that was born out of a community-driven, non-hierarchical, open-source-based approach. And so I think if we can build a half a trillion dollar project and we can really create an antidote to potentially a broken, over-leveraged central banking system as a community project, I think there's a lot of potential out there mm. as this as this snowball gathers more and more. And so I think it will be a hybrid based approach for some time, but I think ultimately what it will look like in let's say 10 years is as easy as it is to get on Slack and work with your colleagues or get on WhatsApp or Telegram, you'll be able to provide a business or a service like that. 
and it will use AI, it'll use Web3 as building blocks. But you'll be you'll be able to provide your business or service or product in a way like that. And as a result of this sort of ease of which you could set up a business and build something, it will mean there's just a lot more businesses, which means it's harder to get bigger, which means that there's just that the, the sort of value is shared in a different way. Yeah, super interesting. Actually, I was going to ask you about, you know, you from a about the kind of use case or the solution that might be the kind of catalyst for liftoff. But actually, I hadn't really considered, you know, Bitcoin is probably the the, the one that, you know, exists that is possibly most representative of where this kind of movement is today, right? Like in terms of, you know, you think of where it was in 20, 2010, 2000, or whenever it started so to kind of how it is today. Yeah, maybe we already have the example right in front of us and who needs any more kind of proof than that, yeah. Potentially. I mean, I think it's the digital gold yeah. example and I think it's the Amazon or Google. It's like, you know, the Amazon or Google of Web3 is is probably Bitcoin and probably Ethereum as the sort of, these were the biggest projects that sort of made a difference and then everything is kind of built on them in the future. I mean, they're not Amazon and Google. They're they're open source decentralized mm. projects. So it's a different way, mindset. But uh, but yeah, financial services is definitely the first big use case for Web3. And then I think it will be this decentralized AI. I think that will become the next one of the next major use cases for AI, for Web3 and AI. And just in terms of financial services, do you think that in terms of how that kind of, you know, affects the kind of mainstream world, do you think that there's something that we're going to see that's more than than Bitcoin? I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of ways of tokenizing and recognizing value in the real world, but doing it as a, as a token based asset class. It's it's a movement within Web3 called Real mm-hmm. World Asset, RWA. And I think that will become a big thing. And it will be sort of, imagine your house is, is effectively tokenized. The value of your property is tokenized. And there's a uh, decentralized marketplace for insurance. And um, there's a decentralized marketplace for mortgages. And so you'll get the money for your house to buy your house potentially as a decentralized mortgage. And when you pay your interest payments and things like that, they'll end up going into, you know, tens of thousands of people or organizations that, that funded that mortgage. So that's sort of, I think we're going to see lots of things like that. I guess one, one example that you use in your book, um, which I thought was super interesting, was the kind of standardization, right, of shipping containers and, and what that then kind of enabled in terms of global trade off, off the back of that. And one thing I can't help but think about mm. the Web3 world is that we need something that is equivalent to that, right? Like you mentioned kind of this tokenization. And at the moment, we have, you know, we have all these kind of different things, right? Reward points here, mm. you know, things, lots of different things kind of competing for our attention. If that could all be standardized as, as one thing, that could be quite a powerful shift in terms of actually, you know, as, as a store of value, for example. Definitely. I mean, I do think that Ethereum is the the shipping container of Web three, and and there are there are alternatives to to Ethereum, and and but what has definitely happened is Ethereum created this smart contract system, and so much of business is built up on a concept of a contract. It's sort of everything from, you know, you're going to do this work, and I'll pay you this much, and I'll own the IP, to we're going to do business together, to you know, I'm going to buy some computers for my business. Everything is a form of contract and an exchange of value. 
And Ethereum created a generalized contract platform that allows for all these different sort of standards to be written on top of, but they all follow that ultimately that ERC standard, which is the sort of, I do see that as the shipping container and it works alongside Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I think is a digital gold and it's a, it, it plays the digital gold use case very, very well. And I think Ethereum plays the shipping container of, of the future of business very well. And I mean, not going too technical, but a lot of projects that were that were competitive blockchains to Ethereum have ended up deciding to just become forms of Ethereum sort of optimizations. And, and they provide this sort of specific Ethereum optimization. And that just demonstrates that this ecosystem is just growing and growing and growing. And it's, it's all based on a concept of standards. Mm. And so I think that that is, that is our shipping container in one, in one sense. So what, what advice, Graham, would you give to anyone today that's trying to, you know, build a Web3 kind of Web3 or even Web4 product or service? I think go to Amazon, get Web3, the end of business as usual, get the book. It's written in a way to talk to entrepreneurs and, and business leaders. It's not a technical book. It's about, it's about speaking to business leaders about the future of this. And I think beyond that, it's just about reading and um, exploring. I think for me, one of the first things that I did you know, in 2015 was, was actually just going in and, and, and actually buying some Bitcoin and trying it out and being like, wow, okay, that's cool. And you know, you're just experimenting. You know, there's so much, ex- this is the supply side revolution. This is, this is not about working for a big corporation that tells you what to do. This is about you being curious and wanting to figure something out for yourself and actually using, even using AI to help you understand it better. I mean, I, I actually use ChatGPT to understand how things, explain it to me like I'm five and ChatGPT can explain a very complex concept to me that I can start to understand again. And um, I, f- I think the opportunity is just to be curious, to explore, to read a lot, and, um, and, and you'll see the power of these types of technologies. So what's next for you, Graham? What does 2024 have in store for, for you? Well, I think, I mean, if I speak about, I think that the market is, is, is starting to get to a very interesting place in terms of we've washed out a lot of the, a lot of the junk that that had made up the last mm. couple of years. I think there was a lot of web two masquerading as web three. And so, you know, everything from FTX, you know, the FTX was at the end of the day, from what we know today, it was essentially a web two business. And they were using all the value of the pro all the value of the crypto and everything like that as as the product. They were using you as the product, essentially, is what we know today. And I, that doesn't get more Web2 than that, you know, that you put, you think you're owning your crypto and you put it into that exchange and then they've been using that to go trade on, on their own really underperforming hedge fund. You know, that's, still, that's a lot like what a lot of Web2 businesses do today. And so I think, you know, the, what people are learning now because of that is the power of self-custody and, and what it really means to own, own the assets and have control of these assets and things like that. So I'm very excited about the, the knowledge and the pathway that we're forging now. I think the Bitcoin ETF next year will be an enormous sounding bell to the legitimization of this technology. And so I'm very focused on, you know, taking my sort of decades worth of being a founder entrepreneur, building my own business, all my time at Google, 
I'm taking all of that. I'm just, I'm putting hundred percent of my energy into, into building web three and web four. And so, yeah, I'm focused on a couple of different projects in this space, but I can only focus on, on this sort of future supply side revolution, web three, web four era. I just think it's so exciting. And I'm, I'm working with some really interesting people on that. So next year, you'll see a few, a uh, few exciting announcements. Awesome. Well, look, Graham, this has been really great to talk to you today. I feel excited now about the possibilities of Web3 and uh, Web4. So for anyone listening, I encourage you to go and follow Graham Cook on LinkedIn. Get the book, Web3, End of Business as Usual. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Graham, for joining us today. And thanks for listening. Thanks, John. It's been great to see you again.